to uh, Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. If you look at uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, then you'll find Esther in the Old Testament. Okay. We're going to talk about a Cinderella story. And we're just getting into the introduction tonight. And so, I, it be, believe it or not, I, I believe it's going to be brief, but uh, it'll be enjoyable. <laughs> okay. Uh, I know that's hard to uh, believe uh, sometimes, but uh, especially when I'm, I'm speaking. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll work along that line. You know, everybody likes a Cinderella story. Everybody li- loves a story. My, my wife... And I enjoy the, the uh, movies with her. You know, Hallmark, they're, they're good, usually good, clean movies. I mean, you just like a movie that's going to have a good ending, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but those endings, though, are not, those movies are not without problems, are they? I mean, they usually are difficulties. Uh, there's a, a turn of events, you know, uh, whatever might happen. And so uh, it comes about in real life. Um, but they're encouraging and they're exciting uh, stories like that. And, you know, you like to hear about real life stories. And let me share one with you. You may know uh, this person. His name is Doug Peterson. Do y'all remember that name? Yeah, Doug Peterson. He, uh, he was the, uh, he, uh, the Cinderella coach or the coach that uh, brought the Cinderella team uh, to the... Uh, uh, Super Bowl a few years ago. You remember uh, Philadelphia Eagles? And, uh, you know, it was just a wonderful story, especially if you know the background. No one thought that they could do it. And that was their fans. They didn't think that they could do it. And so uh, they didn't believe that they, uh, they could win the big ones. And so even though they had a good season, and they did have a good season, uh, they had also home field advantage because they made it to the playoffs and couple the two of the three games, playoff games, were home field advantage. The fans, though, they just did not believe that they could make it. And one of the reasons was their number one quarterback, Carson Wentz, went down with the injury. And two games were still left. And to make things even more difficult for the team, the coach, Doug, head coach, Doug Peterson, had only been a head coach there for two years. And in fact, a decade earlier, he was coaching a high school Christian team. And Peterson, before then, Before he got into high school coaching, he was a backup quarterback for different teams. And guess who one of the teams was? Philadelphia Eagles. Matter of fact, they loved him so that every time that he came through the tunnel, they spit on him. And the spit became D-sized batteries that were thrown at him. They booed him. They didn't like him. And not only that, you can tell that people are really upset when they throw their overpriced beer on him. And that's what they were doing. And so, to top it all off, this was in Philadelphia. And what does that town mean? Brotherly love. Wow. Well, he was back in town 
They loathed him. But he had made a choice to come there as head coach. Now they were in the playoffs. All odds were against them. Quarterback was down. Matter of fact, the highest paid players were on the defense and not the offense. So that tells you something about the team. You know, usually it's a quarterback and, and all of that, but it wasn't. And then on top of that, do you remember who they played for the, uh, the uh, Super Bowl? It was the New England Patriots who had been winning every year. And uh, this year, you know, Tom Brady was no different. He was leading them uh, in the, uh, the race here. Matter of fact, he threw for 505 yards. The backup quarterback, Foles, he threw for 373 yards. But the neat thing about it was right before the end of the first half, they were driving downfield and they were near the, the goal, and it was fourth and goal. And so you'd think a run play, right? You'd think right up the middle. Well, what did the coach call? He called a pass play. They centered it to the running back who gave it to the tight end who threw it to the quarterback, the backup quarterback in the end zone, and they scored. And so the neat thing about it was, the Cinderella story was, things began to change, and those that were booing began to root for him and cheer for him. It was a Cinderella team. It was a Cinderella story. Final score, Eagles 41, New England 33. What a season. From rags to riches type story. We always love to hear those. Well, I want to share with you a from rags to riches Cinderella type story. The one we are going to be talking about is the one in Esther. So tonight we're going to be looking primarily at the background for this. And the background for this involves a very key player. And the very key, I mean the key player is God. Now if you've studied Esther, you'll know that God is not mentioned, the word God, you know. He, he's just not brought up. But he is mentioned throughout, isn't he? Because you can see him on every page almost every event, everything that's happened. And this is what we're going to be looking at. So I want us to look in verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne which was in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of his providence, being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, a hundred days, 180 days, six months. Boy, I tell you what, that's some more party in it. I mean, there was a lot of drinking and, and everything else. That's food, banquets. I mean, you know, it was just a party that just went on and on and on. 
I want to give you a little background here. We've just finished Judges, and boy, aren't we glad to move on from Judges. That was a rough time. Why? I mean, you could see it over and over again. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And what else did they say? And there was no king. In other words, there was chaos there, wasn't there? That's what happens. And the king that should have been in reign, I mean, should have been ruling and reigning is God Almighty. Later Israel called themselves a king. And who was this king in history? Saul, right? Well, after Saul came David. After David came his son Solomon. And then the kingdom split, didn't it? And there was the north and the south. And they had their own kings reigning. But because of their idolatry and rebellion towards God, God in his love and in his sovereignty and in his care, he did not want them to stay away from him as they were moving away from him. He did what was necessary to bring them back to him. And what happened? Well, there was a, a, a power uh, that rose during that time, the Assyrians, but the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians, didn't they? And so the Babylonians came to power, and what happened here? They later, though, fell to Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire. But before they fell, what did they do with the divided kingdom? They took many of the Israelites, the Jews, into what? Captivity. And so they, were, they had been in captivity for many years. Well... When Babylon fell to Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus permitted the Jews to return. But even with permitting the Jews to return, you'd think that all of them wanted to return, didn't you? wouldn't you? I mean, here they were nationalist-type people, and they wanted to get back together, right? No. Only 50,000 returned. And they returned to, with the purpose of rebuilding the temple. But soon that rebuilding of the temple stopped and they needed more help. And so some of the Jews didn't, that did not return, they stayed in Persia because why? Because they had become too comfortable to leave. They had adjusted to that lifestyle, that culture. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? We can allow ourselves to see that happen in our own life if we're not careful. After 15 years, the work of the temple started up again and was finished and dedicated. And in 473 B.C., Esther becomes the queen of Persia. This happens, if you go back to, to Ezra, it happens between chapter 6 and 7. You can just put it in there. That's the time. So the book takes place in the Persian period. And many Israelites, you know, uh, stayed there, but there were some that, that returned to the homeland. And the book of Esther contrasts two opposite worldviews, the impersonal fate 
and divine purpose and sovereignty. Those are key words, divine purpose and sovereignty. Because that brings us to a mind, <clears throat> to our minds of a, the character of the book that we really need to, to notice that his name's not even mentioned, and that is God. That he is sovereign. And that he is working a work here. And that there's going to be a beautiful Cinderella type of story. There's going to be events that happen that you just blow your mind. And it's going to be an encouragement to us as readers, but it was also a, a, an encouragement to the Jews during this day and time. It also illustrates the difficulty, though attainable, balance between the loyalty to God and life within a pagan culture. Now that's hard to balance. But by God's grace and God's help, we can balance that. And so God is writing an unbelievable story here. Here we have a, a storybook ending uh, to uh, a, a story that you would not think would be able to happen. Impossible situations. But that's the neat thing about it. This will help us in our life today it will help us during our lifetime today because as we look at life we experience those problems we see difficulty uh, around every corner and sometimes we wonder just like the name God is not mentioned in the book of Esther we wonder where God is we wonder if he's on vacation we wonder if he's taken off many times God seems distant and though he may seem, or he is invisible, he is always there and invincible, as someone said. This is uh, the main lesson of, uh, of the book of Esther. Uh, though, you know, he, he's absent by name from the pages and from, it seems like, uh, uh, the book of Esther, but he's really not. He's present, and he's very much a part of it. He's in every scene and every movement of every event until ultimately he finally begins uh, to, to bring about everything in a, a very marvelous and magnificent climactic uh, ending that proves that he is the Lord of Lords, that he is a king. And so... Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God is beyond what we could imagine. And as we see this in, in this book, as we will begin to study it, I hope that it will bring about encouragement in your lives maybe someone here is experiencing difficulty or has been experiencing difficulty and at times you just felt like hey god where are you are you there do you care the neat thing about it is god hasn't left you and god is at work and the wonderful thing about it is even though he's invisible as that author said He's invincible. You know, uh, if God 
is everywhere. And if God is working, then that should encourage us. But so often, it seems like when, uh, you know, when things begin to go wrong and when the career seems to, to never take off and, and when the relationships that we're struggling with seem to have no hope of working themselves out, we so often end up in disappointments, don't we? With a world full of unanswered answers or questions. God, why? I mean, if God were all-powerful and all-loving, then why does he allow evil and suffering to exist? Boy, you've heard that over and over again, haven't you? And since it does exist, the, the atheist will say, well, either God is not all-powerful or powerful enough to stop it, or he's not loving enough to care about stopping it, or he just doesn't exist. Well, you know, those thoughts can pop up in our minds if we're not careful, right? When we're hurting and we say, why, God? And we don't seem to have any answers. We don't seem to see him working in our life. We, don't just, we, we just cannot understand what's going on at the time. Hopefully, this will help us to see that God is at work. When all seems to be against us, that's when it's we're learning to to uh, to fly despite our inability to even at times walk. God, I can't even walk. But God will swoop us up, and later on we we wonder, as we look back, how in the world did I get through that? And then you say, ah, it was an answer to prayer. It was God. What we find in Esther is a story that has a story after story after story where things happen that are not supposed to happen. Lives toppled that once were secure. Twists and turns that come unexpectedly. It is a book that... that as I said earlier, never mentions God. There is, there is no direct reference to God in the book. And we wonder why is it even put in the canonical writings to begin with. It seems that this Cinderella story here was put there, though, to teach us something. And that something, and we need to keep our mind focused, is about God, the very one that we can't find his name in. He wanted us to see his fingerprints all through it to teach us how to identify him. Have you had trouble identifying him at times? Sure. That's why, you know, when we... Uh, when we went through this experiencing God, and we've gone through it numerous times here in the church, the thing that always fascinates me about that is, that's the thing that they try to get across to us, is seeing God, his fingerprints, in all of our actions. Why? 
because that strengthens our faith, doesn't it? We see him at work. We watch him do things. But if we're not focused properly, it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to get disillusioned as we begin to see the great obstacles about us. And it really is easy to get down and out when you cry out to God and you can't hear his voice. And you say, God, where are you? One goal of this study is to be able to find God and his providential power in the midst of our personal pain, fear, gain, loss, even love. It is to discover God in the path that we're walking, in the pain that we're experiencing perhaps, in the times when God seems to be silent and even absent. Scripture tells us that God has stamped his image on humanity and and given us the ability to discern between good and evil, fairness and unfairness, hatred and love. If we're just slime on this planet or a curious accident in some backwater pond, we really won't care that much about someone suffering any more than probably a dog cares about another animal suffering. So the answer to the logical question of why we have a problem with evil is that God has placed that sense of right and wrong within us. And the second question that we need to ask is, and we need to find is the theological question. Is what the Bible says, how can we reconcile if it's true, the existence of God with the existence of evil. And the reconciling of the two seemingly contradict the ideas in, in what uh, theologian, uh, theologians call the uh, uh, theodicy. And that is a compound Greek word. And it means that God and justice are combined here. It grapples with the question of how a sovereign God can allow injustice in this world or allow it to seem, uh, seem like it's going unchecked. The Apostle Paul gives us some insight into that question in, in Romans 5.12 when he makes it clear that death, pain, disease, and calamity came as a result of what? Sin. The sin of our parents. Adam and Eve created a stream of, of what it seems polluted water that infects every human being. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul tells us that the whole entire world system, including nature itself, is fallen. Even the universe itself is fallen. It groans for the day of redemption in Romans 8.22. The Bible teaches us that God's ways 
are beyond our ways and his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And he is sovereign. And he is sovereign, that means over evil. That tells us that while God already knows or knew every evil deed that would take place before time began, he also works in spite of them to accomplish his own wise and holy purposes. When you don't see his hand at work, when you don't hear his voice in the midst of your crying, when you can't make sense of the chaos around you, God is at work, and this book will help us to see that. And God is working all things out for, the, for his glory and for your good. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. We can count on that. That's what he's telling the Jews. Even the Jews were, they were faithless at the time, but God was allowing them to know that he was faithful. This truth we can find profoundly throughout the book of Esther. Esther, with excitement and expectation, God's name may never be mentioned, but through the book we will witness his faithfulness over and over and over again. This book, more so than any other book in Scripture, reminds us that even when God seems absent from the drama of history, he is still the main character. Amen. Now let's look at Esther and providence of God. Let's shift our attention from the general questions about evil and God's providence and look now at how they play out in life, real life drama with Esther. The amazing thing about God's providence is that he is able to work all things according to his purposes. That means regard, without negating human freedom and choices. Now, Though we cannot fully understand how this is possible, and I know there's been debate and over it for, for centuries, we know, even though we cannot fully understand, the Bible is clear on these two truths. God is sovereign, and humans really and truly choose their actions. While Scripture teaches soundly on God's sovereignty, it also teaches that within God's sovereignty, our decisions are used as part of the movements in history. Now tell, explain to me all, the, all about that and how all that works. We can only find out from God, can't we? God doesn't dismiss what we do. He uses it. And with the story of Esther, we'll will come to experience a great reversal of people, plans, decrees, and, and seasons in which all once appeared lost. At the time Esther's story begins, the Jews were struggling with their own questions of evil. They had been in bondage for hundreds of years. And because... They were in bondage was because of their lack of obedience to God. God, who had spoken through the kings and the prophets, was now silent. But he was not 
dismissed from the situation. He was not distant. He was there. They had been taken in captivity by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a king known for destroying the walls of Jerusalem and, and looting the temple. Then 50 years later, Cyrus captures Babylon, allowing the Israelites to go home. Who was in charge of moving the hearts of a far, foreign rulers so that the people could go home? Only a sovereign God. This is why the Bible tells us, one of the reasons why the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. Do we believe that God works? We may not can change them, but God can change. Many refused to leave, though, when they were allowed to go back home because they had become what? Adaptable to the culture there. So fully entrenched in the pagan culture surrounding them that they no longer had any desire to return to Jerusalem. For many of them, the promises of God seemed far-fetched. I mean, it no longer was really that, that dominant in their mind and that real in their heart. They were the grandchildren of those who were exiled, and, and their sense of nationalism was weak, for they had never stepped foot in Jerusalem. They were accustomed to the way things were going. They'd grown up in that. We've talked about that. We talked about it with the kings, didn't we? Or, the, or in judges, not the kings, in judges. You see, when, when we grow up in a, a society, we become accustomed to the ways of that society. Now, our parents may look from different eyes and see many things that could be hurting us and that could should be, uh, you know, that we should be protected against and warned about. But we being raised up in it, we hear it over the news, we see it on TV, we, we, you know, we're a part of it at school in different places and at work, it becomes what? Just part of life. And it's acceptable. The same thing with them. Persia was their Jerusalem. That's why the book of Esther never mentions Jerusalem, the temple, the law, or the Abrahamic covenant, or the Passover of Jehovah. The king's name is mentioned some 190 times in 167 verses. God's name is not mentioned at all. Why? Because they had been so or become so accustomed and adaptable to that culture. We will be reminded throughout Esther, and even when God's people forget God, God doesn't forget them, though. And that's the encouraging thing. But the thing that we need to take heed of right now in, in this, with this thought is, we need to remember that we are just journeymen. We're just pilgrims moving through this country. We don't need to become so attached and become so much a part of it that we forget how God would have us to live and where our kingdom really is. Now, it took place, it says, in the days of Asherah, the Asherah who reigned from India to Ethiopia 
over 127 provinces. Here we're introduced to Cyrus' grandson. And as we look at this, this is just a title name, much like Pharaoh or Caesar. It means chief of rulers. The king's real name was what? Xerxes, which means sovereign over men, hero of heroes. So we, with that name and his position from the very start, recognize the power and influence of this king. The point is, the people think and see and look through the focus of this world and they see him as the one who is in charge. Don't we do the same thing though? If we get off focus a lot of times, we don't really by faith believe that God is, is in, in control and that he's sovereign and that, that he can move kings and he can change hearts and he can do things. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And he's all powerful. No, what we see is what's around us. And I don't know about you, that's so easy for me to do. When you start getting discouraged or down and out or, or you start uh, having problems or difficulties, then it's so easy to see what is around you instead of the God who is in control and at work. So Herodias, now the kind of king he was, Herodias, a Greek historian who lived just after the Persian Empire, was defeated, wrote this about Xerxes. He said that he was the tallest, most handsome of the Persian kings, and he was ambitious, ruthless, and jealous. Now, how ruthless was it? Proof of his ruthlessness expressed in certain war stories. And one was a man named Pythias offered uh, Azarias an enormous amount of money in support of his military expedition against Greece. And so Azarias uh, moved uh, by uh, this man's loyalty, returned the gift, and sent presents back to Pythias. However, when Pythias asked Azarias to uh, allow his oldest son to remain home from war, <laughs> the king, enraged by the request, ordered the son to be cut into two pieces and had his army march between the two pieces of his son as they went to battle. This was the kind of guy that they had to put up with. You need to get this in your mind. I mean, you know, he wasn't just a sweet king that let, the, uh, uh, let him go back. He, he was a king that was ruthless. There's other stories. So we see that he was very haughty. He could become very angry. He was merciless. His kingdom included modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. It's said that the uh, tribute that he received from these nations that were subjected to him, around him, totaled more than 700 tons of gold and silver annually he was known as the great king the king of kings the only king over all the earth he was seated in the great citadel of susa that's the palace where daniel was buried 
and the place where his own son, the king's son, would one day be served by Nehemiah. So he seemed to be a preeminent mover and shaker in the kingdom of Persia, but behind the scenes, we've got to realize God is at work and he is in charge. This king is not. He is only allowed to do what God allows him to do. And so in chapter 1, it looks like Ahasuerus is a man with the power. He is seated on the throne, palace at Susa, greatest kingdom of the planet. But as we look closer, we will see the shadow of providence hovering over that little throne. So what do we learn from this as we begin this study? Number one is, God may remain hidden, but he is never absent. He is there. He may be invisible, but I said, as the author said, he's infallible. He may be unusually quiet, but he has undiminished control. He may be ignored, but his will is never frustrated. Now, we can get frustrated over our wills not being done, carried out, our plans. God's never frustrated. He may be unsuspected and unnoticed, but he remains unconquerable. These things should encourage us as believers not just the Israelites during that day and time, but us as believers to know that that is our God. That is our Heavenly Father. Daniel 4.34 said, For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stop His hand or say to Him, What have you done? done that's an awesome God isn't it don't you want to be on his side what encouragement Psalm 135 6 for whatsoever the Lord pleases that he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the deep places thank you God for being there for being in control the book of Esther was not, to get, uh, was not given to us to uh, be enamored with Esther, although we will be to a degree. It was to be enamored with God. He's the one. And boy, this is going to be hopefully an exciting story. Even though his name's not mentioned, but to see him at work. See him bring about the impossible. To see him bring about this wonderful Cinderella story from rags to riches. To know that it's him, he who is in charge. Let's bow our heads in prayer.